Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the New Books Network. My name is Lee Pierce, she, they pronouns, and I am your host for the channel in language. I am really excited today. I know I say that every episode, but like this one is for real. I managed to get Nancy McLean to agree to do the podcast. And Dr. McLean is the author of several fabulous books, but today we will specifically be discussing Democracy in Chains, the deep history of the radical rights stealth plan for America published in 2018. And not only is Nancy here to discuss this book, which talks about how the far right has been just like coming after democracy for decades, and we are possibly only one election away from an almost total takeover. But we're also joined today by attorney Mary Whiteside to help us unpack some of the legal implications with what the far right is doing to co-opt the courts. Get ready for an explosive expose of the right's relentless campaign to undermine civil rights and alter the Constitution forever. That's told from a historical perspective um, using the character of James McGill Buchanan, who was a Nobel Prize-winning political economist who over the past several decades developed a diabolical plan to preserve the white elite's power in the wake of Brown v. Board of Education. Um, Once he joined forces with billionaire Charles Koch, the rest is pretty much history, and now with Mike Pence in the White House, Democracy in Chains is telling an incredibly important story about how right-wing academics and big money has run amok to to threaten democracy in ways that we have not seen throughout history. So stay tuned, pull up your pants. It's going to be a wild ride. Nancy, Mary, welcome. Let's start with introductions. Nancy, will you tell us a little bit about yourself and how the book came to be? Sure. My name is Nancy McLean, and I'm a professor of history and public policy at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. And the book that I'm here to talk about, Democracy in Chains, was actually not the book that I set out to write about, which we can talk about perhaps in a few minutes. At Duke and previously at Northwestern, I teach modern U.S. history with an emphasis on the impact of social movements on public policy in a broad range of domains. So delighted to be here with you. And it just sounds like such a great podcast. Yeah. Well, why don't, yeah, why don't you talk a little bit more about that and then we'll introduce Mary because one of the things you mentioned in the introduction to the book is that you didn't actually write you kind of just stumbled on this Buchanan story who's kind of like the central protagonist of the whole historical work by accident almost so maybe see that's interesting so it's not really the book you set out to write how did that wind up happening yeah actually not at all so the two people <laughs> largest in the book are uh, James Buchanan the who most people have not heard of I had not heard of when I first came across him but he was the first Nobel Prize winner in economic sciences from the American South and the other person who looms large is Charles Koch um, of Koch Industries and of course you know most of your listeners will probably know the fortune he and his fellow donors have invested to transform American politics. At the time I set out on the research for this book, in 20, 2006 rather, I'd never heard of either man. And actually 
what I was following was the story of the school shutdowns in Virginia, in Prince Edward mm-hmm. County, Virginia, to defy the Brown versus Board of Education desegregation ruling in 1959. They closed the schools for five years, left Black children with absolutely no formal education while they sent off all the resources to a white private segregation academy. And I had never heard about this story and I found all this documentation. So I thought I was telling one story, but eventually it led me to both Buchanan and Coke in ways that we can talk about as we go along. Yeah, I think one thing that emerges by the end of this book is how tight the evolution of the right wing and the de-privileging and defunding of public schools has been, right? Like they're part and parcel. So we'll talk a little bit about that. Mary, do you want to say hi first before we dive into the book? Sure. Hi, my name is Mary Whiteside and I am a longtime public defender. I've worked in the courts and at the appellate level and I'm just passionate about democracy. Yes, this is definitely going to be a pro-democracy in the real sense, not in the sense we say the word and don't really mean it. Let's talk about the book. Why don't we start wherever you want to start, Nancy? But obviously the beginning is always a great place. And then Mary and I will jump in as we're able, but it is your interview. So take it away. Okay. Well, so I can just pick up the story where we just left it off. So I found this incredibly moving story of uh, what had happened in this community. And the school shutdown was actually designed to punish Black children, Black uh, high school students who had gone on a 100% solid strike for a better high school, a decent high school. And the white county officials punished that act of courage and heroism, we would say today, by shutting the schools. Oh, and also that case had been one of the five cases folded into the Brown versus Board of Education litigation. So uh, so the county leaders were punishing them. And then I realized that the shutdowns in Prince Edward County were part of this larger project of what was called massive resistance to Brown versus Board of Education. And central to that massive resistance were state provision of tuition grants, they called them, today we would call them school vouchers, for private schools so that white parents could pull their kids from schools that were going to be desegregated and send them to private schools subsidized by the tax dollars, including of African-Americans. So anyway, I thought, wow, this is pretty resonant with what we're facing now, you know, in our contemporary world. Let me dig in a little bit. And it didn't take long before I found the libertarian economist Milton Friedman, author of Capitalism and Freedom. Many people will have heard of him getting involved in this Southern fight in 1955 with his first manifesto for school vouchers that he issued in the full knowledge of how it would be used by Southern segregationists. So I thought, well, that's an interesting story, this kind of free market fundamentalism that we see today connecting back to what people thought was the last gasp of Jim Crow, you know, and here they're combined in this way that nobody has really documented. So I just started digging away and I am what historians call an archive rat. Um, And I just kept pulling on these threads that led me further in and in time led me to this James McGill Buchanan who had set up shop at the University of Virginia in 1959 with a new center to promote this kind of economic libertarianism. And he also intervened in the Virginia schools conflict using the, essentially the wrath of the segregationists to move this program of economic liberty. And I was actually really stunned as an educator myself to see another educator doing something like that. It was so obvious, you know, what he was up to and so frankly horrifying to today's sensibilities that I thought that there just must be 
be more of a story here. And so in time, that led me to the connections to Charles Koch and the, the much bigger story. But as I said, it was not at all a work in which I went in with an idea of what my thesis was <laughs> or my conclusions. I was just exploring. And that exploration just, you know, left me gobsmacked. Each new layer, I frankly started to find astonishing. Yeah, well, this is one of the things I love about being a humanities-oriented podcast is this is the kind of, right, you went into this archive, essentially, his office, Buchanan's office, and you just talk about how there was just stacks and stacks of documents and really had to dig for what the argument was. And if you'd gone in thinking you already knew everything, we wouldn't have the book. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, it's- I can't describe to you, though, too, as a researcher, just the feeling of, of seasickness. I, oh, I bet. Took to that place when I realized, because see, this man had also left several institutions in a rage, and neither he nor his personal assistants, Gal Friday, he called her of many years, seemed to really believe in good filing. <laughs> so it was just absolute and utter chaos. But, you know, I kind of, you know, took a deep breath and, and just started methodically and again was uh, just repeatedly astonished at what I was finding in those papers. Yeah, like egomaniacs are kind of a double-edged sword, right? So Buchanan was so convinced he was right, he leaves this just unapologetic paper trail of confessions is what, what they look like. I mean, some of you, sometimes you read the book and you're like, why would this guy put this on paper? But he, he couldn't, he knew it was right. So you get this archive that lets you uncover all this stuff. On the other hand, though, it's like, how could anyone just repeatedly profess this stuff and not realize how problematic it was? So... Very yeah, there was reach. actually a very big dust up after the book came out. From I, I didn't even realize how many Coke funded professors there were uh -huh. out in the country until they all started attacking me in unison. But um, but as but you know, my editor said it's very interesting. Like this is a cause that was so insular and essentially so small in its core yeah. for so many years that, as you say, it was all kind of self-reinforcing, backslapping, and they'd never really seen what they looked like from the eyes of another person outside the cause. And so I think, you know, what they saw of themselves was not very flattering. <laughs> um, and that, plus the danger to their funding sources and other things, I think really, really got some alarmed. But yeah, that whole discovery was so much fun too, in the sense that that you know, if, if your listeners um, are familiar with the Coke network and the the methods of operation of Coke Industries, they're tremendously secretive. You know, they do all of this stuff to just, you know, create disinformation and to hide information from the public and to keep people from understanding how interconnected all these groups are and blah, 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 blah. But what happened at George Mason, where I, I found all these records and uh, which is the, the prime base of the um, political operations on campuses in the U.S., what, what happened there is that he and Charles Koch and James Buchanan had had a falling out um, in the late 1990s that I write about. Oh, and yeah, they yeah. actually parted ways. And what happened is all the Koch funded professors moved off to a fancy new, you know, glass compound in Arlington. And they left this big old clappered house chock full of papers. And I think it was also because, you know, they're economists, right? And they, 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 they disdain the humanities. You know, they, they disdain the interpretive social sciences. So they just, I think, couldn't even imagine that they were leaving behind something that was valuable in this, this paper trail. So that was kind of fun too. 
Yeah, no, it's fabulous. So you mentioned a couple of things that are kind of what I would call sort of like later threads on the book, which is mm-hmm. um, about the, the the entrance of Charles Koch into the picture. Do you want to say anything else about, because you have a, some really interesting stuff about, for lack of a better word, we'll call it Buchanan psychology, what uh-huh. sort of like how his like history of, of martyred white male victimage kind of drives his obsession with defeating all kinds of social programs with the language of economics. And then you also talk about, I, I, my notes are so messy, but this um, development of the Thomas Jefferson Center for Political Economy and Social Philosophy, which is where, like you said, Buchanan starts to really get his hooks into academics and start yeah. building this from an academic core, which now looking back seems like, oh, that's so brilliant, right? If you want to build a ground up revolution of constitutional principles, of course you start with the scholars because in the 50s, that's who everyone is looking to for. And the politicians are too expensive and far away, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That is so, so apt. Absolutely. And so going back to uh, the 1950s with that, um, that founding of the Thomas Jefferson Institute, which he also chose, he said, you know, the name, they didn't want people to get the extremist program. Right, right. <laughs> you know, so they gave it an anodyne name in a university founded by Thomas Jefferson. But so that really is um, just an archetypal story of the corporate university, as people call it now, you know, the it, things that so many of us are dealing with. With, where education is being defunded, you know, where students aren't getting access to what they need, and yet donors are having this huge impact on the schools and on curriculum, etc. So Buchanan really was working that um, uh, that 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 project back in the 1950s, and so you see that develop through the book. But I'm really gladly that you pulled um, that you picked up on the kind of personal psychology of this because you know I've written previous books, but in none of them had I delved as much into trying to understand the characters. And you're absolutely right. I mean, Buchanan really. Um, cultivated this kind of chip on his shoulder uh, in a way that's now familiar to us, I think, from the broader kind of white, even nationalist white. But he loved calling himself a Tennessee country boy. Um, He was from a small town, an agrarian family uh, in Tennessee from a little village called Gum, grew up there in the 1930s, made a great big deal about his the agricultural po- uh, poverty they lived in when in fact they were quite wealthy and nobody had water you know um, in the house lavatories uh, in Tennessee in those days but anyway um, he he and I think he picked up some of this from um, some of the southern leaders at that point who were pushing back on reconstruction who hated the New Deal etc but he cultivated as you say this image of um, southern white victimhood you know and of being abused by northern elites as he put it so he had for example, been passed over when he was in the Navy uh, for products of Eastern elite universities. And he had gone to Middle Tennessee State University. um, And he claimed that he was also passed over for a Rockefeller. And he felt like he was smarter than that person. So that was for him, this kind of primal injury. And he really nursed it. I mean, I've just seen through the years, he would tell the stories over and over again. Uh, But so that... that that sense of injury uh, from the federal state was was crucial to his kind of psychological and political formation. Uh, but interestingly, when he goes to the University of Chicago, which was another kind of donor funded, you know, um, uh, uh, bastion of a kind of um, economic liberty, uh, economic and uh, law and economics program there too, he. Um, uh, 
what was going to say that he um, he found in those economics something that actually ratified the kind of southern political economy he had grown up with, which also bridled against the New Deal, against workers' collective power, against regulation. So so there was a really interesting kind of regional um, uh, coming together in his own personal history, which he then furthered through his university think tanks and academic um, kind of movement building, really. Yeah. And I think a couple of things that come out for this um, are number one, just like how easily the the language of economics comes to cover over all kinds of crappy values. And you talk a lot about uh, a book called Oh shoot! The calculus of consent, and then also yeah. this emergence of public this public choice, which seems like just another economic theory, but in fact, it's a doctrine of of white supremacy, for lack of a better word, that I think we saw again with the Obama with when Obama, Obamacare, right, with people like wanting this public option, and everyone saying no because once you have the public option, that's how the right the far right is trying to co opt public health care, right, by adding this 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 public choice kind of argument. So do you want to say a little bit about that that calculus of consent and that public choice doctrine? Because they're really the kernel of what gets built out over the next couple of decades. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the book, The Calculus of Consent, was was the core of um, uh, the uh, commendation for his Nobel Prize, uh, uh, winning the Nobel Prize in economics. And there's an interesting story about the Nobel Prize in economics we could go into, too. It's different from all the other prizes and much more, you know, corporate funded. But anyway, um, yes, yeah, so that book and this whole um, philosophy of public choice that he developed, which is a certain kind of uh, political economy, was actually, from the very beginning, highly political, donor-funded. He was selling it to corporations on the, you know, what good it would do for them. But in academic terms, they presented themselves as advancing a neutral science, a science of explaining how people behaved outside the market and particularly in government or the nonprofit sector. And the, the core thesis was that they, 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 they kind of took the, the notion of, you know, economic man, homo economicus from free market economics and applied it to public life and said people are only ever acting in their own rational self-interest not what they claim. So it was a debunking effort to say that people in public life who say they're talking about the common good, et cetera, are frauds, essentially, and hypocrites. So it's a very toxic uh, ideology, and yet they continued to package it as science. Um, so it attained this great academic credibility. Uh, and in Buchanan's hands, it was only ever theoretical. Right. It was like game theory and stuff, no empirical research, right. but just this series of aspersions on the public sector. And it's very interesting because even at the time, uh, some people recognized it as toxic. Yeah. <laughs> public life. And as I actually just yesterday got a note from someone who had been exposed to this in the 1980s. And he said he recognized it as like cancerous, you know, at the time, but it was being treated as though it were a science. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, anyway, so, so that is really interesting, but I would say, you know, you were saying like, it was kind of a naked project for, for white supremacy. The phrase I use um, in the book, or 
I think I use it in the book. I've definitely used it since. Is property supremacy? Yeah, pro- that's right. Property mm-hmm. the, for the property privileged. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. but it's all. It's not only that, and I think that's important because I actually I have a wonderful writing group, and when I was writing, you know, a lot of this, and you know, in earlier drafts, I had a friend who's you know brilliant, wonderful. She's like, this is so racist. You have to just say it and name it. And I'm like, well, they're not actually talking about race, and I have to be mindful of my evidence, and but also another part of me wanted not just to make it about, you know, to kind of reduce it to that racial element, because I think there's something very sad that happens with white people in our country. And maybe it's changing now. It's so exciting to see the solidarity that we've seen about the movement for black lives. A lot of times if you say something is about racism or affecting black people, men think they don't mean to, but they tune out because they think, oh, this isn't about me. So I really wanted to understand that this is going to affect them too, right? This is going to take down their world and things they care about, like public education, like public health. And it was about a whole vision of society, kind of misuses of words so that people would think that they are supporting one thing when in fact they're supporting another. You know, just one example being the Trump tax cuts, which Americans for Prosperity were pushing very hard for. The Coke Donor Network was advising the Trump administration on on a daily basis, et cetera. And they would send their own believers mailings that would say, do you want to see more of your hard-earned dollars in your own pocket and have limited government or something? Then do this, make these phone calls. But they would never tell them that this bill was really shoveling huge amounts of money to the most wealthy people in the country and corporations and was full of time bombs that would hurt the very people on who votes they counted. So yeah, there's all kinds of games being played with language uh, by these folks. And I think quite self-consciously, frankly, at this point, you know, because now they can benefit from focus groups. So it's good that Lee's Lee's, uh, specialization is rhetoric, right? And unpacking language and seeing how uh, public uh, speech is used. So I'm reading through the book and there's all this stuff about like using this word economy and economics and it's not economical. And this is what economics is, as if that's one word. And then at some point, I wish I had flagged it, but you know, this is one of those books where you highlight everything so it becomes useless. And you made the point that you were like, but here's the thing, people have created economies all throughout history in different cultures and they do different things. So saying something is or is not economical doesn't answer the question, and this is a Stuart Hall question as well, um, like what's an economy for and what do you want to do with the economy? And that's the implicit warrant of this entire stealth takeover is that the economy is to make the rich richer. And on that point, I, I, I do agree with you. I, I shouldn't have said white supremacy. It's, an, it's a shortcut that only captures part of the picture because class sometimes gets covered over by race. Mm-hmm. And this book is very much, I think, about how all of the middle and working classes, regardless of race, are threatened when we let stuff like this happen. And one of the ways that the takeover works is by pitting whites against blacks, right? That's how they, they, they play on the fear of, of black America as a way to keep the poor classes of whites from rising up and demanding that the rich pay taxes, right? That's sort of like part of the stealth movement. Yeah, absolutely. And and you can see that happening in my book. You know, you can see the way they do it. So I understand totally why uh, you, you drew that conclusion in shorthand. There's another book that your listeners might really appreciate too by um, Ian Haney Lopez, who's a law professor at um, either UCLA or uh, Berkeley. Yeah, he's at Berkeley. Um, 
and it's called Dog Whistle Politics. Um, and it just shows how exactly what you're talking about has been done over time and how it operates today. And fortunately, has a successor book to that that is, I forget exactly what it's called, but it's, it's basically about um, race class fusion. And the only way we're going to get out of this ditch that we've been dug into by these folks is by realizing the degree to which they have weaponized racism um, and these dog whistle politics in order to push through political economic policies that that endanger all of us, you know, yeah, whites. Yeah. I mean, certainly people of color and those who are historically um, denied full citizenship most egregiously, but all of us and ultimately the planet, because so much of this is coming from the fossil fuel industries. And fossil fuels were really important, fossil fuel companies to supporting Buchanan centers from the 1950s on. Well, yeah, I think then... Oh, sorry. So we, we kind of moved on to the Coke stuff, which is awesome. We're almost there. But I did want to stop briefly before we move into the more current period and talk about the 60s, because this book is not really full of good news for liberals. Um, but the 60s are great news, right? So I thought maybe we'd talk a few minutes about that and then move into some of the more modern context with the Coke brothers and the fossil fuel industries. Because essentially what happens in the 60s is not only does do they think that Barry Goldwater is going to be the solve, and then it's a disaster. But then Lyndon Johnson shows up, and then Nixon, who everyone thinks is this right-wing politician, actually turns out to be like almost far to the left on many issues. And so the whole thing is just a huge disappointment. Plus, then you have him, um, you have Buchanan, like basically finally get called out as just not being a very good scholar, having to move institutions, where then, of course, he has to encounter the 1968 era of protests and solidarity, and it pisses him off to no end, which in the hindsight is bad because it really fuels the fire for what happens in the 70s and 80s. But, you know, it's a part of the book where it's like, okay, like, there were still some checks on this guy's just radical property-bearing takeovers that I would like to celebrate because it's the part of the book where you actually start to think he's not entirely just a monopoly, right? Like, he, there yeah. are things that stood up to him even when no one knew what he was up to. Yes. Yeah, thank you for that. And it's funny, the original book was, of course, like so many books, twice as long as the existing one. And in the original book, I had so much more of the kind of social movement and social protest dimensions in, because actually, I mean, I, I personally believe the single most important finding of my research is that these people, you know, um, in particular Buchanan and Koch, but kind of the whole operation, they have decided to do what they're doing to us in the way that they are by stealth and disinformation and so forth. Um, because they realize that they're a permanent ideological minority, that nobody wants the kind of, almost nobody wants the kind of world they're trying to bring into it to being, including conservatives. They're flying under a false flag when they say they're conservatives. So it was that realization, um, that realization was the product of so many experiences like what you're talking about, Lee, right? So, you know, James Buchanan was strutting around the University of Virginia thinking he was so important while it was a country club backwater for white guys, you know, in their jackets and ties and coats. Suddenly, people, including white students and faculty, were demonstrating with civil rights uh, activists against the racism at his own university, were trying to open up the state. And as soon as the state of Virginia got open to all of its people with the Voting Rights Act and civil rights struggles, there's a new elite. 
he was popular with the old elite, the reactionary elite, right? These people understand they need public investment if they're going to bring Virginia out of the backwater to be the place it is now. So he loses his luster. And as you say, he, he, he had been so arrogant. He kind of, you know, he tried to, to, to muscle them around and they said, take a walk. But when he takes a walk, he finds himself at um, UCLA with um, Angela Davis being the most popular professor on the campus. And and so it's just such a trip. That chapter is called A World Gone Mad. You know, it's just like him looking out at what the 60s wrought. But, you know, in fact, all those protesters were changing the culture. They were changing the times. And much that followed that era was opening things up so that we could have an inclusive democracy. So working people including women and people of color, could have more power. So this project um, on the right kind of keeps escalating in proportion to the achievements on the progressive side. And I think the real turning point actually uh, comes in the 1990s um, as the environmental movement has developed and as scientists discover that we have what they then called global warming, what we today called climate change. And that's the point at which Coke industries and you know many of the kind of people that are in this libertarian orbit realize, uh-oh, we're doomed. <laughs> you know, even Republicans then were talking about taking action on the climate and Republicans were talking about using the peace dividend, right, from the end of the Cold War. And that's when they said, whoa, essentially we have to rig this system to make it so that the people and the majority can can't exercise their will. It's a good name for your follow-up book for the next decade, Rigging the System. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Actually, that is a good thing, though. So a lot of people are out there now and are realizing that the system was rigged. There's actually somebody else whose book I can recommend on the hopeful side. It's called Unrigged by David Daly. So. Oh, yes. I've heard good things about that. And, and Mary, I had cut you off earlier. Sorry, just to keep us on the book. Did you want to jump back in now? Yeah. I don't, I don't remember if what I'm going to say now is what I wanted to say then. But anyway. Um, Kind of going back to, to the way they use terms or uh, use terms and, and misuse terms, I've been struggling with the use of the term conservative mm-hmm. because they call themselves conservative, but they're anything but conservative. And I do think that they have in, they've engulfed people who actually are conservative, but they're now being led and co-opted by what I would call anti-democratic uh, revolutionary libertarians. And, but nobody calls them that, you know, because they get to hide behind this conservative, you know, that people think that they're talking about conserving democracy, conserving America, when that is not what the leaders are doing at all. And so again, it's this conflict between what's going on under the surface and what, and, and the words that are used and they're, and they're, you know, it's like, so it's like parasitic, you know, like they're using these terms that we think we understand, but they're using it differently. Yeah, what did you say? Um, revolutionary uh, libertarian, anti-democratic libertarians. Revolutionary libertarians. That really summarizes it. And in fact, what's interesting is right after what we were just talking about of the 1960s protests, and Buchanan then leaves UCLA and goes back to the Virginia mountains. Um, they start developing an institutional infrastructure to move this program. Uh, and one element of that was the Cato Institute, which used to be the Charles Koch. <laughs> you know used to bear his actual name as well as carry his ideology. And I show in, I guess that would be chapter eight, that they were self-conscious revolutionaries then. Charles Koch was talking in these terms. They talked about 
actual conservatives with nothing but contempt, you know, you know, that these were, you know, I don't, I don't want to even use the language myself because it was so insulting what they said about conservatives and about people who believed in God for that matter, right? But they realized that they were not going to get anywhere being as radical right as they were and as revolutionary and as anti-democratic they were not going to make friends. They were never going to be able to move policy change. So what you see from that 1970s honesty about being revolutionaries of the right is a kind of chameleon-like performance uh, that develops over the next uh, decade and more, where suddenly they realize the votes, they need votes to get things done, and the biggest share of votes that would be open to them are people who understand themselves as conservative. So they adopt this false flag, as you say, um, and, and kind of all but take over that space. Um, and to do so, they also make alliances, which are, uh, frankly, would be hypocritical to that 1970s honest libertarianism, but they find ways to do it, in particular with the religious right. So I don't talk as much about this in the book as I kind of wish that I had in hindsight because I could asked about it a lot. But they definitely, from the 70s forward, Buchanan and then Koch and then Cato and other, like they start kind of cozying up to the religious right because they see that they're a source of votes. And the way that they do it, um, the ones who try to be more principled, is to speak in terms of religious liberty, a phrase that we hear a lot now, right? So now we hear about the religious liberty to basically discriminate, right? The religious liberty to deny jobs to uh, people who are, are um, queer or, um, you know, like, somehow offensive to Christians, religious liberty to uh, be exempt from healthcare regulations that would have coverage for women's reproductive health, um, religious liberty to open your churches instead of obey the COVID-19 um, precautions. So they're really um, uh, conscripting all these other actors for this conservative cause. And um, I actually quote in the beginning, uh, in the introduction, um, Orrin Hatch, the senator from Utah, I liked this part. I know, right? He actually says it. He says, he said, these people aren't conservatives. They're not Republicans. They're radical libertarians. I despise these people. But look what happened. Then it's it's the exact same man who denies President Obama the ability to seat judges, right? Because he is um has become controlled by their program because they're such powerful donors and they can activate that right-wing base of voters in primary challenges that, you know, kind of weld the popular anger to the donors' purses um, so that no Republicans will step out of line. So, I mean, it's kind of bizarre. I think there was actually more dissent under Stalin in the Soviet Union, in the Politburo, than we see now in the Republican Party in Congress. Like, and you no, certainly Republicans, but not many who are running for office. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, toe so the line. I mean, it's one of the reasons why, why the far right is so scary. I mean, they just, it's the cause first and, on, and they're shockingly good at falling in line. Right. Yeah. Close ranks like crazy. Yeah. And again, People see the base, you know, the, the people talk about the Republican base and the voters, journalists do, but they, they seem not to pay attention to the donors, right? right? The donors are driving this too. The donors are insisting on getting their way. And until we get wise to that and start really calling out those donors, I don't think that we can break the grip. 
Yeah, I did a book interview maybe last year. Uh, some rhetoricians wrote a book called Make America Meme Again. And it was about how the far right used sort of like trolling internet meme culture to recruit uh, uh, like this base. And it's a great book. I think it's very interesting and covers covers a piece of the puzzle, but without the donor piece of it, it does make it seem like it's this kind of disparate, partially grassroots movement around the far right that doesn't take into account how much of that has already been programmed by decades, right? Mm -hmm. If not more than a century now of this stealth program. So, I mean, the book is just a crucial, like it's crucial. Mary brought it to my attention. So I think Mary, uh, but more importantly, I thank you for writing it. So. <laughs> well, thank you both. I'm loving this conversation. So, is there anything else? Yeah, this is a great, I mean, it's so good. Is there anything else we want to say about Coke? We didn't talk about the Pinochet piece. I don't know if like that's kind of a cool history piece that I thought was nice, but if you're not pumped about it, we can skip over it. Let the readers read that chapter. But well, I would say one here? thing about the Pinochet chapter, which is um, when Buchanan is invited to uh, Chile in 1980 under the Pinochet dictatorship, because they're trying to put in place a constitution for when Chile goes back to civilian rule, but they want to lock in all the things that they did that were so unpopular under the dictatorship, like privatizing education and social security and making all these other changes. So Buchanan advises on this constitution they call the Constitution of Liberty. Well, it's that exact constitution that people were dying in a fight against last year that, you know, huge numbers of people were out on the streets all over Chile. It's tremendously unpopular, but it's almost impossible to change or to amend. And the reason I think that matters to us now is that the Coke uh, network is trying to push for constitutional changes in the United States. They've already achieved constitutional changes in some states, like mine, that adopted a, um, a, a, um, a control on uh, a permanent control on income taxes. So we're hard pressed to deal with COVID because we have that locked in. Um, but they're also trying to achieve that nationally with a constitutional convention that would transform uh, the U.S. Constitution um, at a convention that would be the first since the Constitution was crafted in 1787. So that the Chile story, I think, is important as an example of what the National Archives says, you know, calls the past is prologue. Like, that's what they want to do to us here. Um, and maybe that leads to some questions I think Mary had about the, the legal uh, dimension of this movement and this cause, because that the legal front is so important to them and is something that I think um, most journalists have kind of missed. Like, there's been great following the money and seeing what these organizations are doing. But the end game is to completely rewrite the legal rules of our society to entrench this po uh, property supremacy. So it's- Oh, you're speaking, you're speaking Mary's language. Take it away, Mary. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's absolutely what they want to do. They want to rewrite the, they want to rewrite the laws. They want to rewrite what's legal. And then, uh, then there is no recourse. There's no peaceful recourse. Yes. If we, if we take away, and that's, that's the part that even I, even I have a hard time saying out loud, but yeah. it's true. If we take away the courts, there is no peaceful recourse to get us out of this situation. And that's what keeps me up at night. Um, and because it's going on, not really in secret anymore. I mean, you know, you stumbled upon this because it was intentional. They were, they've been, you know, intentionally keeping us hidden, but McConnell is openly said that his number one priority are putting through these judges. I mean, it's happening over and over again, and yet people mention it, but it, it's not this five alarm fire yeah. um, that, that you know, you, 
kind of alerted us to and and you know I've been focusing on um and then I and then of course yes the constitutional convention stuff um so my question to you is how far along this path you know they have this do you think they are yeah, five alarm fire pretty much captures what what they have done with the the legal system already in the Supreme Court and other parts of the courts and mandatory arbitration and so forth and so on. Um, sometimes I I when I try to think about how far along they are, I remember the um, uh, the clock, the nuclear clock that the Union of Concerned Scientists had, the atomic clock, right, about how dang- how close we were to nuclear war. Um, and I think in terms of a democracy clock, right, like the binding of our democracy and how close are we. And um, as far as what they've achieved, we're really far along, right? I don't know, what are we, 1145? <laughs> you know, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's close. It's scary. It's really close. Um, and, and it's scary, too, because of some things that we um, haven't talked as much about, but that are part of the picture in that it's the Coke Donor Network and the American Legislative Exchange Council, you know, and, and, and these, you know, all these groups that they fund that have pushed for uh, voter suppression for the most radical uh, gerrymandering in our political history so that our state houses don't actually represent our people in the way they should. And the House in in Congress also does not because they have so gerrymandered things to disproportionately represent a minority party. Um, You know, we saw the elections, I don't know when this show will air, but in Georgia, you know, they just had these primaries where in urban uh, communities and predominantly uh, minority uh, communities, people were waiting seven hours, right? I mean, some of the, in some of them, the, the voting machines didn't work at all. So we are, and meanwhile, this cause is trying to um, privatize the postal service, right? To defund, right. strangle the post office. And we're seeing this just as we're approaching an election in which tens of millions of people are going to be trying to vote by mail so that they can avoid the pandemic. So it's really breathtaking. And I think, as you say, a five alarm fire um, that we have to be alert to and we have to alert others to. Uh, But what I would say at the same time is the picture is so complicated because I think so many Americans are waking up to this, right? And again, we are the majority. If the majority understands this and the majority takes action and the majority protects these elections and, you know, addresses the legal issues, not only can we stop this cause, but we could renew democracy so that it can face the challenges of the 21st century in a way that many people have known we needed to do it. And I, you know, I traveled until COVID, I traveled almost every week since the book came out, you know, speaking to audiences of all kinds around the country. And I was so impressed at the degree to which growing numbers of people understand that we're at an all hands on deck emergency for democracy in this country. And they're, they're responding in their different ways, but, but I feel like we're not quite like aligned or on the same page as much as we need to be in order to prevent them, the right, the radical right from getting away with this. So. I think we have a, I think we have a, a, an opportunity with Black Lives Matter protests to, uh, to, to um, join these two issues, voting suppression and uh, defunding the police and, and, you know, and, and, you know, achieving, you know, treating every citizen as a valued human being and, and valuing black lives to 
advocate for both at the same time, because if we do not have a fair election, as we saw in Georgia, in predominantly minority areas, I mean, they're, they're targeting, um, they're targeting them because it works, because voting works. Mm -hmm. And if we join these movements and demand, you know, fair voting at the same time, I think that we have, you know, a real opportunity, a real, to fight back, you know, in a way that the right wasn't, you know, they obviously feared it from the 60s, but weren't, you know, it's kind of, what's the right word I want? Prescient, I guess. I don't know. You know, it's, it's we can use it. Yeah, I think I, I just could not agree more with what you just said. I totally agree. And I think, I mean, I myself was surprised by the incredible levels of solidarity we're seeing, right? Across the U.S. I mean, these protests are occurring in small town communities, many communities that don't have that many, you know, small town communities, African-American residents. There are lots of white people getting out there. I mean, these are levels of solidarity that as a scholar of social movements, I have never seen this level of solidarity on, as you say, the basic humanity issue, right? That we have a political economy that is is attacking the humanity of our African-American neighbors, family members, fellow citizens, et cetera. And white people are getting it now because of the movement for black lives. I think because also of that, uh, the Cooper woman in Central Park who tried to use her white privilege, you know, and, and because of COVID, because of everything, it's all coming to the fore. But I think you are so right. This is as a scholar of social movement, sometimes I think there's just magic moments. And I think through all the horrors of what's gone on with COVID and with um, the killing of George Floyd, somehow magic is being made by this solidarity that has the capacity to really change things. I mean, already we're having conversations nobody imagined we'd be having even three weeks ago. Um, but also it is weakening the administration, which has depended totally on dog whistle politics, right? to get white people to do things that are not in their interests. So yeah, I think, you know, there's the old um, uh, saw that no, there's no crisis that isn't also an opportunity. And this is a huge crisis, but it is also a huge opportunity if there are enough voices out there pushing to change the conversation in the directions that we need it to go as the movement for black lives has um, so beautifully. And also if people are organizing to unrig the system that has been so dramatically rigged, you know, most obviously right now against African-Americans um, with the criminal justice system and other things, but really against all of us, you know, rural white people are drinking water that is so polluted from the combination of fracking and of, of um, uh, deregulation. I mean, you, you could just go endlessly into the examples, but I think we're finally realizing that as um, a figure from North Carolina, where I live, uh, the Reverend Barber puts it, Reverend William Barber says, we is the most important word in the progressive vocabulary. And I think the country is starting to see that, right? With this solidarity, people are realizing that we are a we, we are in this together. We need one another to, uh, to thrive. And we've got to fix a system that is, has undermined all of us and turned us against one another. Which, um, which raises a question that Mary and I have both been kind of struggling with, which is when you read a book like yours, you kind of come away with the conclusion there is no choice but Biden. You just have to vote for him because we can't afford four more years of Republican-backed Trump court appointees because four more years of Trump is 60 more years of court appointees and they're getting them young and they're getting them 
like flexible and they're getting them co-opted. And that means that they're in a pocket from the time they turn 35 and then they can stay, you know, 50, 60 more years as a Supreme Court justice before they leave. And so how do you respond to people who look at Biden and are like, two-party system doesn't work. It disenfranchises African-Americans. Uh, you know, he's obviously like a me tooer. So they just, they want out of this election. And how do you talk to them about how you can understand where they're coming from, but also like we, we can't, right? So how do you feel about that? I absolutely understand the frustration, but I think the impulse is suicidal. Um, and I think though part of our problem um, in this country, and this goes back to our early discussion about the ways that words have been kind of hijacked and repurposed, is that what we're facing right now at the end of the day, this isn't between um, Democrats and Republicans, right? It's not between liberals and conservatives. It's between the people, it's the people who are behind those Republicans and conservatives who are the, frankly, the most scary creatures we've seen since the slaveholders, you know, led a rebellion so they could found a country on slavery. Um, and they are so determined um, to have their way, to have their pure, you know, unrestrained power that they will destroy the planet. They've been trying to do that and they've been trying to mislead us about the danger. So my feeling is that it's really important for people um, uh, who want to live in a decent society and who want to see justice to stop thinking of politics as expressive and start thinking about politics as instrumental right? Like, you don't have to like <laughs> the people you vote for. You don't have to want to go out for a beer with them. You can criticize them. And when they get into office, by God, you know, absolutely hold them accountable. Keep organizing, keep fighting. That was the problem with Obama, I think, is that everybody went back to sleep, right? And so he didn't face almost any challenge from the left. Nobody's going to make that mistake with Biden because of his history. Um, so I actually think in certain ways, he is more vulnerable to popular challenge than Obama was, and he can be pushed in the right directions. Um, but again, the most important thing, as you say, too, is that our society is being rigged, and it's at the danger of a tipping point in terms of total rigging that we can undo if they get those court appointments, um, and if they change the Constitution and state constitutions in the ways that we want. Then, as Mary said, it's a five-alarm fire in which we have no peaceful recourse. We don't want to go to that place the first means of stopping that is huge mobilizations for these elections and not just for Biden, but for our own states. That's where we lost so much power and the right was so smart. They concentrated all this effort in 2010 on winning control. I, I know, the 2010 midterms. I was watching those like, no, no, what are you doing? So, so it's like we have to reinvent from the bottom up. But I will say, and here's, you know, one of the reasons I like history is because I think it's an antidepressant. <laughs> um, and it, they're like, you just see so many um, surprises in history history. And one of them is the, the election of Donald Trump. Uh, there was uh, one commentator um, who said that um, Donald Trump is an alien sent from outer space to unify the American left. <laughs> I think that's true. I mean, we're seeing that in these last few weeks, right? Like, he's like the wicked witch melting in the Wizard of Oz. And I have done this worse. He just yeah. He's got to have gone off the rails. I cannot imagine that some of the decisions he is making, he is making under advisement because they are so incendiary that anybody with a stealth plan for the far right has to be looking at him going, you can't do this. Yeah. But, the, but, there on, no. but the judges are their insurance plan. 
the judge, that's a nice way of putting it. I'm going to have to write yeah. it down. Um, but the thing is, they, they, if you look at the 2018 midterms, it showed, you know, it's like, it's like a promissory note on what could happen if people get engaged because Trump so pissed people off that a Democratic Party that was dying of necropsy, I heard from our state Democratic leader, which I had to look up. It means like dying from the limbs in, you know, yeah. they didn't have people running for anything. Now, everywhere with like Indivisible, with the Women's March, with um, the Movement for Black Lives, people are running for everything. They're running for prosecutors, they're running for state's attorneys, they're running for school boards, they're running for county. And this is what we need to reinvigorate from the bottom up and transfer form. And that work is happening. And you could see it starting to happen with 2018. So I think it's just really critical that we figure out how to mobilize people and, and make our voices and our votes count in this time of crisis when the election is, is really in danger of being stolen. And even Biden thankfully said that today, you know, that he thinks that Trump will try to steal this election. So, so that I think is the key thing is to get people to realize this is hugely important. You don't have to excuse anybody you vote for. Be part of the process of cultivating new leaders. Become one yourself. Replace them eventually, but let's get the train on track. So all of that is is uh, is is very encouraging, and that and what I'm going to talk about isn't isn't as encouraging. But I want to get back to to the legal aspect because um, I've been thinking so much about it and. It was designed with this as a fallacy of an independent judiciary, which has always been, in my opinion, a fallacy. Like they've never been truly independent, even though they weren't necessarily, they were, they were independent in the sense that no one owned them, but of course they had their own biases and prejudice and all those, and all those issues. But it doesn't have a, a check per se on it. There is no, there's no, nobody coming in and looking at any judge's finances. They have no idea if they're getting bribes. They're just, there is, there is no entity that monitors them. It's all, they're all supposed to act uh, according to ethics and, you know, they get to recuse themselves on cases where they have conflicts and there really is nobody above them. And I think that that is, uh, you know, they, the, 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 you know, the radical libertarians, I think, have figured that out. And, when, and in the book, you know, you say how Charles Koch's father was involved in this lawsuit in which the judge was bribed and he lost. And so to, so it, it's like, oh, oh, justice can be bought. Yeah. And, you know, and there's this whole thread running through the Kochs where they, they look for ways that, they're, that they can influence. And, I've, and I think so much about carrot and stick. You know, mm -hmm. it's like, where you give money, you know, where you, um, where you hold something over somebody's head, you know, and I, and I mull this over and try to figure out what's going on, you know, again, because it's all secret and it's secret, especially with judges because no one's looking, there is no apparatus for that. Not at the state level, not at the federal level. And that's terrifying. And you also, especially at the federal level, you have lifetime appointments. Mm -hmm. And I think that we, while, of course, you know, constitutional conventions are scary from, you know, redoing it, I think we do have to think about the judiciary because they've gotten such a foothold in something that doesn't have a backstop. Yeah. And we can't, you know, and when it comes down to it, it's all ideas, you know, right? The founding fathers had ideas and they talked about something and here we have a country. So to think that we can't have more ideas, I think is, 
is, is unnecessarily self-limiting, especially when we're facing this existential threat. And I consider anti-democratic liberalism to be an existential threat outside of, you know, the ideas of American democracy. Yeah. Um, so I don't know, I, I guess just wondering, had you thought yeah. about this, this yeah. erosion of the, of the independence? I think you summarized the 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 challenge um, really eloquently, and and again, I think it's the piece that so many of us have not been paying attention to. You know, like we have this tendency to just think about national politics. If we think about national politics, to think about the president, we lost sight of the states, and we got devastated because of that, because so many rules are made at the state level. So similarly with the judiciary, and I, I took down your, your phrase before, um, that, that, that they're an insurance policy, right? These judges. And I think we have to pay attention uh, to that. And you're right. It's like, you know, it's like having this um, this exposed flank to hunters, you know, like where they're going to go right for it. Um, and an example of that that came to mind as you were speaking was um, something I cite in the book of uh, the privatized uh, corrections industry, where they were bribing a judge. This judge, fortunately, he did get caught, but he was taking like a head price on children, sending them into detention facilities for you know, trivial reasons because he was getting money. He was extending their sentences without even bringing them into court. Yeah. Yeah. And so, as you say, I mean, this is literally like a life and death uh, power that these judges have. And in the book, I, I talk a little bit about how um, through the Federalist Society, which was an ingenious long game and Coke boasts mm -hmm. that provided seed money for it when it was getting started, you know, there was a point when Antonin Scalia and Clarence, Tom Clarence Thomas were uh, attending some event, and I, f I forget now what the detail was in the book, but it was like they misnamed where they had been, but you could see how they could misname it because it was another you know, they said, they didn't say Federalist Society, but they said something else, but they're both funded by Coke. They're both corrupting the judiciary, you know, and we don't have access, as you're saying, to the information we need. So I will say, say though, because um, I, I, um, I know that my book can be daunting. A couple of people have said it's like a Stephen, what's that guy, a Stephen King novel, which I don't, I don't know, I haven't read one, but I got it, the point. That it does it, have a little bit of a mystery novel element to the way it um, it's a great read, though. I don't. I don't think it's like a horror book. It's a very stimulating read. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, it's riveting. But just to say, like, also, like, I don't want people to feel so overwhelmed by this that they forget the most important point, which is that this cause knows it's a permanent minority. And that's why it's using stealth. That's why it's suppressing the vote. That's why it's using systematic disinformation. So we've got to look for the cracks, the openings, the places where, you know, people can uh, have influence and where people are getting wise to this. And I'll just here give a shout out to um, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse and Sherrod Brown and uh, Senator Leahy and a few others who have actually um, just recently issued this report on the Federalist Society and said that they think that um, judges should not be able to be members of the Federalist Society um, to be on the bench because it has become such an ideological corporate captured um, uh, phenomenon that is like, you know, um, that, that has ruined their independence on the bench. And there are many studies that have shown this, that, that actually judges will judge differently. One uh, environmental um, uh, legal researcher I was talking to has shown this, um, that 
if, if a case starts at one point and then people go off to these, the judges go to these Federalist Society retreats. So it's like a natural, um, a, a natural um, uh, a laboratory kind of test. Um, they change when they get back. Um, and, and do more of the corporate bidding. So anyway, they're so uh, toxic, these organizations that have been funded by these, these you know, um, arch-right billionaire donors. Um, but fortunately, at least, you know, some people um, with the power to do something are also realizing that we are at that 1145 on the democracy clock and we better get control of this. Because as you say, and I think that's such a good point, that, you know, the whole notion of the independent judiciary sounds attractive, but as you point out, like it's not really being monitored by anybody then either, unless we start to do that monitoring ourselves. Well, and I wonder, you know, when you look at the legislative end, they have ALEC and ALEC drafts legislation that they just hand out to these to these elected officials right they don't even there's nothing to do with their constituents uh and you know and, and what do they care they just put it in because that you know again this carrot and stick going on probably carrot um and i wonder at the judicial end again with the federal society and this and this erosion of independence they're going to want to have loyalty amongst the judges in the same sort of way. And my, and my, I'm surmising perhaps that they'll use amicus briefs mm -hmm. as ways to get there in addition to, of course, to their federalist meetings and things like that, but in, in a way to, to, to signal, you know, where, where everyone should be, should, should be coming down. And so it's like, when you get into court, you're not actually against, you know, you have it, it there's a there's a silent there's this like secret third entity in there yeah. um, that is influencing things. So as an attorney, that's 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 a terrifying thing because really, what what do you do? It's you're already as it you know coming from its standpoint, you're already stacked up against prejudice and mm -hmm. class and and all of these things, all of these regular societal things that have sucked for you know generations and, and centuries now to add in this this corporatist you know federalist forget it you know there, there's no there's no way we're getting anywhere that is so interesting. I have to admit, I never thought about that until you said it, but the, the lining up of all these amicus briefs is a signaling. And, and this cause absolutely through Fox uh, News and Breitbart and the way that they work the internet, they have looked at the research on psychology and evolutionary biology to try to activate people's tribal instincts. So what you're saying though, that's so fascinating is that there, that can be a tribal signal judges too like you don't know how to decide in this case well look here's your team and there's that other team right. um that is fascinating i just never never thought of the signaling function of that apart from the you know the substantive function so i think that's really interesting um also um kind of bringing the conversation back to where we were um, uh, earlier when you mentioned ALEC, you know, and ALEC, literally the corporations, and this is the Cokes convened this, they, you know, worked on it, you know, helped fund it, et cetera. They actually have the corporations sitting there drafting the model 
legislation that the legislators will then take back to their states. And many of us, uh, you know, since 2010 uh, or 2011, rather, with Wisconsin and so forth, have, have understood ALEC to be, you know, anti-labor. So Scott Walker taking away collective bargaining rights. Of course, ALEC was pushing that. Um, we've seen them with deregulation, with supporting fracking, with, you know, pushing for all these legal changes and other things. So we kind of sometimes think of them in terms of like class or political economy, but it was ALEC that pushed the stand your ground laws that led to the murder uh, or led to the uh, George Zimmerman's exoneration for the murder of Trayvon Martin back at the start of Black Lives Matter and the movement for Black Lives. So in a certain way, I think that takes us kind of full circle back to where the, what we were talking about, about the way that white supremacy and property supremacy reinforce one another, you know, so deeply in our history in America, but also that the only way we'll get out of this is a, a kind of um, a, a coalition or even an alliance that really understands the fight against racism as central to the fight for economic justice and for a healthy planet and all the other things we need because it is so clear that the other side is um, using racism strategically in order to achieve uh, their ends that they know that otherwise they could not build a following for. So, um, and all these roads as you're, you know, go through the courts ultimately. So that is um, such a critical area to pay attention to. Yeah. I can talk forever <laughs> no that's why i brought mary on all this amicus briefs and sexiness i don't even know what this is but it's exciting so almost as if you've done this before you managed to bring us full circle to wrap up the episode and i do like to observe listeners time not that they shouldn't sit here and listen to us talk for three hours but life being what it is um do either of you want to say anything else before we wrap the interview which has just been so so good well, I would just want to thank you um, for this incredible work that you do. And I know, especially for really good interviews, like interviewers like this, like it takes a lot of time to prepare um, and you are doing an amazing job. And I think an incredible public service. I mean, one of the things um, that I have held on to in, you know, the traveling that I've been doing um, to alert people to the threat that we face um, uh, and, and since the book came out is a lot of radio interviews and podcasts. And I just have to say, I so love the medium because it enables these really deep kind of searching conversations. You don't really know where they're going to go or what's going to pop up. Like your understanding of amicus briefs just rocked my world. And, um, and, and it's also a way, especially now in COVID time for like, human beings to meet and connect with one another and remember that we're not alone, right? There are other people who share our values and our commitments who are out there and we're all part of this big division of labor trying to um, save, save the world basically. And the planet. New Books Network is fabulous. We're all nonprofit. Um, we, we don't, we're, we're not even beholden to the presses. I mean, it's basically like if the authors pick who they want um, and then shout out to Marshall Poe, who's our CEO who grew this from a channel on history with a couple hundred listeners to dozens of channels with now a million listeners. And we actually only had about 750,000 a month until COVID. And we're actually one of the few podcasts that has, has dramatically increased, which I think is a good sign because it means that people have taken this opportunity to educate themselves on things that like, frankly, public school isn't giving them. Because yeah. as, we've as the book, and I think this is another really good reason for anyone who's listened to the interview to really go back and, and read the book because we haven't really talked about how so much of this stealth plan has to do with the defunding of public education so that people can't wrap their heads around the fact that this stuff might be going on. And so I'm really grateful to the New Books Network 
because it's a free public resource that subsidizes what you should be getting in your K-12 and just most people are not for lots of reasons. So thank you for coming on and, and thank you for the compliment. I'm really proud of the network and all that it's done. So um, Mary, did you wanna say anything else and then we'll say goodbye? I just wanna thank you for digging through those archives and, uh, and uncovering all of this because I was so confused and grieving really what I thought uh, this country was, what I thought conservatives were, what I thought the Republicans were. And I was so confused and your book really just, you know, shined a light, you know, it's not pretty, but it, it, truth is so important. And with that truth, we can, uh, we can take action. And that's exactly what we need to keep doing. Thank you so much. That's just a beautiful tribute and I appreciate it. And it is funny, I actually have a dust allergy. So the archive ratting is getting harder. So I'm glad that you appreciate it. It was worth every hour you're going to have to spend on a defibrillator to back. So anyway, I'll just remind the listeners again that we've been speaking with Mary Whiteside, who is an attorney um, who works between New York and California, and Nancy McLean, who is the author of the book we've been discussing, Democracy in Chains, The Deep History of the Radical Rights Stealth Plan for America, available from Penguin Random House. So for those of you that I know will be rushing out to grab a copy, um, it is available on all platforms. And if you're not interested in the copy for yourself, maybe your ap appetite has been sated by this fabulous conversation, consider checking in with your local public library, another place where we really need to fight back against the radical right stealth plan for America, which is keeping those public libraries funded and full of great books like this. You can either ask them to purchase a copy for the library. This is true of university libraries as well but their budgets are limited. So even better, if you can pick up a copy and make a donation so that more people can get these ideas. It's um, one of the best things you can do to pay back all of us as volunteer hosts for the New Books Network. I do not want your money, but I would like your idea circulation. So I will leave with that. Nancy, Mary, this has been wonderful. I wish I could stay and talk to you all day, but I'm sure you have lives. And thank you again to New Books listeners at home. Take good care of yourself and be well.